Hello and welcome to the MicroSamplify podcast, a partner to the microsampling blog from Neoterics. Listen in as we hear from key thought leaders in research science and medicine testify to the powers of microsampling in their industry. For this episode of the MicroSamplify podcast, we are speaking with research scientist Dr. Caitlin Sattler. Chief of the Section for Immunoengineering at the National Institute of Biomedical Imaging and Bioengineering, or NIBIB, part of the National Institutes of Health, or the NIH. In early 2020, Dr. Sadler and a team of researchers conducted one of the very first serology studies of the novel coronavirus, which we now know as SARS-CoV-2 in an effort to identify undetected cases of COVID-19 illness in the U.S. Hello, Dr. Sadler, and welcome to the MicroSamplify podcast from Neoterix. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us about your work at NIBIB in Bethesda, Maryland. Thank you so much for having me. I know that immunology is the general focus of your research, and that you aim to use laboratory methods that are translatable to the medical arena. But can you tell us a little more about yourself and give us an overview of your broad research interest in immunology and regenerative medicine, tissue engineering, and foreign body response at NIBIB? Yeah, so I started off in uh, immunology, basic immunology, meaning understanding how our immune system uh, reacts to different stimuli like bacteria and viruses and just how the cells behave in our body. And after that, I moved into the world of tissue engineering and regenerative medicine, where the goal is to grow back, you know, missing or damaged tissue. And since then, I've been working kind of at that intersection between basic immunology and biomedical engineering. So the immune system is really a richly complex network of immune cells and proteins that can affect really any process in our body, from the obvious, like defending us against infections like SARS-CoV-2, to the less obvious, like helping neurons form new connections with each other. It takes in information from the organ that it's acting in, from our own genetics, and even info from the friendly bacteria that live within our bodies, and it creates a specific response to a given stimuli. So for our lab, uh, these stimuli that we are investigating are medical device implants and trauma. The immune system can determine whether or not that cut on your arm gets replaced by functional new tissue, full of hair follicles and sweat glands, or if it turns into a big scar. And the same is true in other tissues, like muscle, which is one of our focuses. In regenerative medicine, our goal is to grow back new tissues that are lost due to damage, disease, or genetic mutations. And we can't do that first without understanding our immune system. Interesting. And on your section for immune engineering, immuno engineering website, 
it states that your lab develops immune active biomaterials for regenerative medicine through a bottom-up approach using mechanism-based immunology methods. Can you share with us your current research in this area before your priorities shifted to um, COVID-19? Yeah, so as I mentioned previously, we really can't start to approach therapeutics for tissue engineering and the replacement of damaged organs until we understand the way our immune system interacts with the materials we've engineered and devices that are used to reconstruct these damaged tissues. So for muscle injury, we could put a material into a wound that beautifully recapitulated that muscle structure when it's outside of the body. But once we put it inside of the body, it would create a massive amount of inflammation, causing more harm to that already damaged area. On the other hand, we could put in a material that's caused severe scar formation. And instead of functional tissue, we just get that giant scar. So therefore, if we understand how our immune system interacts with materials that create environments that are conducive to wound healing and regeneration, we can leverage this understanding to create targeted therapeutics that regrow tissue by modulating our immune system. So let's turn now to COVID-19. Starting in April 2020, as the coronavirus pandemic was gaining momentum, you and your colleagues at the NIH collectively and rapidly developed a serological assay specific to SARS-CoV-2. You and your co-investigators have since published a paper in Nature Communications on your dual antigen ELISA protocol that evaluates IgG and IgM antibodies against both the spike ectodomain and the RBD. Can you discuss this SARS-CoV-2 protocol and how you maximize throughput and reproducibility to be able to process thousands of samples? Yeah, so the um, SARS-CoV-2 zero survey work is an example of um, inter-institute collaboration within the NIH. Um, so along with NIBIB, we also worked with the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, NIAD, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences, NCATS, and the Frederick National Laboratory for Cancer Research. Um, so with those different groups, um, what we focused on was re relying on first optimizing the different antigens used for antibody detection. So we didn't want to reinvent the wheel. So we tested constructs that existed from other groups that were kind enough to send them over to us. Um, we found two of these antigens worked the best in terms of both um, feasibility and producing the protein itself. Um, and of course, the signal to noise ratio on the ELISA, which is the platform we use. Um, and uh, a special thanks to um, uh, the NIAID uh, Vaccine Research Center and Jason McClellan for that spike construct, as well as Aaron Schmidt from the Reagan Institute for the RBD construct. Um, so using both of those, that allowed us to have a heightened sensitivity and specificity that was not possible with just one antigen alone. So this sensitivity and specificity are really critical when evaluating thousands of samples. Um, so furthermore, in addition to using clinically derived patient convalescent blood samples, so blood from people that we know had had SARS-CoV-2, we utilized recombinant monoclonal antibodies against the spike protein. 
And these are commercially available and are precisely in a controlled concentration, so we won't run out of them. And if somebody wants to compare their data to ours directly, they can run a standard curve of those antibodies instead of using patient-derived samples that can run out and are not known of an absolute concentration of an antibody. <clears throat> also using blood samples taken before the pandemic started, we're able to show the stability of the assay and really minimize false positive readings, allowing us to be really confident in our data. And when we applied this to a semi-automated robotic setup, we were able to increase that throughput while maintaining precise control of the assay. Hmm. Okay, on the practical side, how were you able to collect thousands of samples over a sampling period of 11 weeks from study volunteers across the US? Can you share with us how you overcame the hurdles of obtaining nearly 9,000 blood samples during a pandemic when stay-at-home restrictions were firmly in place? Yeah, so uh, quite a lot of these um, uh, these uh, serologic studies um, utilize um, retrospective samples. So these are um, samples that already have existed from uh, things such as routine blood work or dialysis. Um, so our goal was to go out and collect samples, um, which has that added bit of complexity. And so this is where that dried blood sampling really came into play. Um, in general, we knew we couldn't bring everyone into a clinic during a respiratory virus pandemic, um, especially early on where transmission dynamics were poorly understood. So using remote sample collection and shelf-stable samples like dried blood, we're able to reach quite far away, geographically speaking. Um, and also, being a remote collection means that individuals didn't need to have a clinic nearby to donate blood, um, because it's really difficult if you know, you want to volunteer in a study, but your closest clinic that's able to pull blood is an hour or two away. Right. So can you discuss how this particular study, which used these remote specimen collection kits and micro sampling devices, differs from your past projects or public health surveillance studies within the U.S.? So dried blood sampling has been used previously in um, public health studies, and um, our goals here were to collect a representative sample of the United States, and that was really only possible using remote collection. Uh, being able to reach volunteers at their home and not requiring a venipuncture blood draw was very important. Um, so if you think about it in the context of other health monitoring, like people with diabetes who prick their fingers daily to keep black, track of their blood sugar. Um, could you imagine if that had to be venous blood? Um, so practically speaking, at-home sampling was the way to go. Um, this was one of the larger uses of dried blood sampling that we are aware of, um, especially considering the longitudinal aspect of our study. So our study participants are collecting blood at three time points over the course of a year. Um, and we hope that this study provides an analysis pipeline that could be utilized um, to look at seroprevalence of other infectious diseases in the future. Right, moving forward. So in what other types of studies or areas of research might microsampling be applicable specifically? And is your lab planning for those types of studies in the future? 
So in my viewpoint, uh, shelf-stable samples are a great avenue for research um, that covers either things like a large geographic area. So in our case, the United States, we got as far away as both Alaska and Hawaii. Um, and it helps reach more remote populations that don't have a quick access to a clinic, um, both in rural areas in the United States and in other countries as well. <clears throat> and so you start to eliminate some of that cold chain issues um, that pop up with samples like serum or plasma where you need to keep them frozen down. And we know that we can study antibodies using dry blood, and I think there's a quite a few other stable analytes in the blood that could be viewed and, and um, evaluated as well. So there's plenty that can be done, and personally, I'm all about engineering approaches to healthcare. Um, so remote sample collection really opens the door for studies that wouldn't be feasible if they relied just solely on the clinic. Right. Well, thank you, Dr. Sadler, for speaking with us about how you and your group were the first to report on the prevalence of asymptomatic SARS-CoV-2 infection across a representative sample of people within the U.S. We wish you and your colleagues great success with your future and follow-up studies. And thanks to our audience for listening to this episode of the MicroSamplify podcast, a partner to the microsampling blog from Neoterra.